Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. For Austin to solidify its role as the next great innovation powerhouse, let's talk about what has come before and what are the trends pushing us forward. One area of study that greatly affects our future is trying to understand the very nature of progress itself. What is it? What drives it? And how does it affect our region's future? Today, we talk with Jason Crawford, founder and CEO of The Roots of Progress, a nonprofit dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress the 21st century. Jason writes and speaks about the history and philosophy of progress, especially in technology and industry. Prior to Roots of Progress, he was a software engineering manager and tech startup founder. He was the co-founder and CEO of Fieldbook, a hybrid spreadsheet database. He was also an engineering manager at Flexport, Amazon, Groupon, and helped build a biotech supercomputer for D.E. Shaw Research. In addition to his essays and talks, he's writing a book titled The Story of Industrial Civilization. Jason Crawford, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thanks for having me here. I wanted to start off with a couple of basic questions to kind of set the stage. Tell me what your philosophy of progress is. It's a term I've never seen before. Yeah, you know, I came up with that term, or I mean, I may not have been the first to come up with it, but I started using it recently in the same sense that you might think about philosophy of science, philosophy of law, various areas uh, like this have a sort of some kind of foundational questions that border on philosophy or perhaps overlap with it. In the context of studying progress, both sort of general, you know, progress in human well-being and maybe a bit more narrowly, uh, material progress in science, technology, and industry. I think, you know, the, the foundational questions are roughly, um, what is progress? How do we define and measure it? Is progress good or more broadly kind of what are the pros, cons, risks, and trade-offs? Um, so the value of progress. Uh, three, what are the causes of progress? And uh, ultimately, the hopefully we can find the root causes or, you know, as I've said, the roots of progress. And uh, a particularly important sub-question there is how much of those causes are within our control? Do we have agency uh, and uh, can we shape our future, our, our destiny? And then finally, you know, coming out of all of that is maybe the fourth topic, which is what should society do about progress, right? So what should be our stance towards it, our relationship to it, and um, and kind of how should we handle it? So I see those as kind of the broad questions that make up the, the philosophy of progress um, as such. And I think that uh, every era that thinks about progress has some implicit or explicit answers to those questions. In the uh, late 19th century, especially, and into the very early 20th century, people tended to answer some of those questions with fairly optimistic and positive um, answers, maybe even a little bit naively optimistic. In the 20th century, I think we saw a, a major attitude shift, uh, certainly in the, in the mid to late 20th century. I think it was a process that began around the end of the world wars, uh, if not before, and, and was certainly uh, fairly well uh, ensconced by, say, 1970 or so. There was a real souring on the concept of progress, and people started viewing it with much more, especially technological and industrial progress, with much more fear and distrust and skepticism. And I think that has not brought us to a great place in the 21st century and certainly is not a good basis for going forward. So I think we need to regroup, look at this picture again, and 
uh, not go back to maybe some of the naive views of the 19th century, but also uh, try to uh, come up with a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century that uh, you know recognizes kind of the value and the the, the great value to human life of technology and industry, and, uh, and and really reasserts our agency over the future, um, so that we can start to build a, a technologically ambitious future that we want to live in. I want to talk about that and in, in really dive into one thing. You you talk about the great stagnation, and a lot of that seems to be post the Apollo moon landing, 69 and 70 kind of thing. So we're talking about now almost 50 years. What's the great stagnation and, and how is it affecting us? Yeah. So when, when, uh, when folks who talk about progress talk about stagnation, they are talking about this uh, sort of phenomenon over the last 50 years or so. Yeah, so you mentioned Apollo moon landing is 69 or, you know, right, if you just want to pick a round number, you can call it 1970, where we have seen, I believe, a relative slowdown, not a complete halt, but a, a slowdown in technological and industrial progress relative to, not relative to the pre-industrial era, uh, when things moved, you know, very slowly uh, before the Industrial Revolution, but uh, certainly relative to say about a hundred years ago, and uh, I started out somewhat skeptical of this idea, uh, especially because there has there has been so much progress when you uh, look the last fifty years. The you know most of the computer revolution, the entire internet revolution, all of that uh, has you know has happened since 1970. We've had uh, genetic engineering, you know, techniques and other things, and it just seems like you know life has has continued to get a lot better. But then I started coming around to it when I started reading about what happened in you know even earlier periods and how many amazing uh, breakthroughs were stacked up in a very short period of time. Uh, so if you if you take the fifty year period starting about a hundred years uh, prior, so say starting in eighteen seventy to to nineteen twenty, in that period you had the entire electrical industry, including light bulbs, generators, and motors, and building out of the grid, two the internal combustion engine and the vehicles based on it, the automobile and the airplane, three the uh, telephone and the radio, which together uh, revolutionized communications. Four, applications of chemistry uh, to give us things like synthetic fertilizer with the Haber-Bosch process, uh, the first synthetic plastics with Bakelite, uh, and then five, a revolution in public health based on the new germ theory that was uh, that was uh, developed during that time, uh, which gave us things like pasteurized milk, uh, water, chlorination, and, and better filtration and so forth, and began to really reduce the mortality from infectious disease. So five major revolutions stacked up in that 50-year uh, period that uh, really covered pretty much every aspect of, of life and the economy. And I just don't think you if, you, if you start to count up, you know, how many similarly major breakthroughs were there in the last 50 years, I just don't think you get as many. I think you get one or two that, that I've already named. So I do think we've seen a, uh, a relative slowdown, although again, progress still moving faster than at any time before the Industrial Revolution. What happened? What changed? Yeah. I have three hypotheses, which are not mutually exclusive. They all they all build on each other. So one is uh, increasing sort of layers of uh, bureaucracy and regulation. A lot of this is uh, government and, and federal regulation, but not all of it. I think some of it is kind of uh, self-regulation within uh, both for-profit and non-profit um, organiza private organizations. Number two, hypothesis number two is the way that we fund and organize and manage 
research and development, especially scientific research, uh, which got consolidated after the world wars into a small number of large federal agencies, which creates a bit of a monoculture for, for research funding, which is just generally, you know, anytime you have a single method for funding things, uh, for funding ambitious new projects that tend to challenge the status quo, you're going to have some blind spots. And so I think a, a greater diversity and sort of uh, heterogeneity of such methods is, you know, would, would maybe be better. And, and we've kind of done the opposite. Hypothesis three, it relates to the philosophy of progress that I was just talking about. The fact that the culture has soured uh, so much on the idea of progress and, uh, you know, that uh, young people, for instance, may not see uh, engineering and, you know, business as such, uh, you know, exciting and, and, and meaningful fields to go into anymore. Uh, and indeed, uh, a, a lot of uh, young people have been instead uh, attracted into sort of the opposite um, trying to to slow down and push back and 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 fight, uh, you know, uh, scientific and uh, or especially technological and industrial progress, you know, wherever wherever it occurs. So those are kind of my three hypotheses. How do we fix it? There are a lot of things to do at a lot of different levels. Um, I've been focusing on the most fundamental level, which is also the most long term, which is that third hypothesis about our general attitudes um, towards progress. I think the basic way to get to a, a more accurate uh, and, and healthier relationship to progress is to start by rediscovering the history. I think too many people today don't know the history of progress. They are not uh, you know, really clearly aware, uh, acutely aware of just how much life has been improved in the last couple of hundred years how how terrible living conditions were in many ways, uh, uh, even 100 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And so I think they tend to, I think a lot of people tend to take the modern world for granted. Uh, it's easy, easy even for, for us maybe who, who, who appreciate it on some level to just forget on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, everything from the concrete foundations under our feet to the to the steel girders around us and the plate glass windows to the electric lights overhead, all of this um, it is really a gift from our ancestors and something I think we should look on with a little bit of awe and wonder and gratitude for those scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs of the past who fought to, you know, to bring these things into reality. Um, and I think most people don't have that perspective. So part of what I'm trying to do with my work is to, is to just tell the story again. I think the story of progress has never really adequately been told for, certainly not for a general audience in a way that's accessible outside of uh, maybe, you know, the academic halls of economic history and, and so forth. Um, and so I think uh, starting with that, just sort of retelling the story and, and, and communicating the basic facts of what life used to be like and the amazing discoveries and inventions that gave us the modern world, I think that's, uh, you know, that's the place to start on, on that very basic level. In terms of uh, some maybe some more short-term and, and more directed um, uh, areas, there are uh, a number of folks who are working on new ways of funding scientific research. And uh, I'll, I'll rattle off just a few, but I'm going to be dropping a bunch. Um, uh, my friend Ben Reinhardt is working on an effort uh, that he calls Private ARPA. There is another idea out there called Focused Research Organizations. Uh, there's a new nonprofit uh, that started up last year, I believe, called New Science. Uh, and these are just a, just a few uh, efforts there. You can see there's been a couple of recent articles uh, on, on some of these efforts going on and, and what they're doing. So I think that is really exciting. Uh, I'll also call out something that just launched a, a few days ago last week, which was called the Institute for Progress. It's a new D uh, Washington, D.C. policy think tank 
uh, advocating uh, what you know what what can be done in in DC uh, in, in government to uh, to help uh, unblock and accelerate progress. So there's a number of things going on at different levels. I'm I'm excited for this whole ecosystem of, of projects that's uh, that's coming about as this community uh, uh, that has formed around progress starts to swing into action. So I want to take us back into that kind of arc of history and one of, I think, has been one of the most important connections with progress and innovation, and that's been geography. If we look at, you know, it's been concentrated regions, right? So recently it was Silicon Valley, Detroit in, you know, the 1950s, during the Industrial Revolution, you know, it was London, and you go back to ancient times, right? It was Rome, Athens, Babylon. Why do you think we had such geographic concentrations throughout history of progress and innovation? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people want to go where the action is happening, right? <laughs> so uh, I think that uh, there's lots of reasons why communication and, and communities, um, you know, help people advance their ideas and take on ambitious projects. Um, so there's both a, there's both an effect where the, the sort of mo- the, the smartest and most ambitious and talented people are attracted to and flock to centers uh, where there are other such people and where exciting and ambitious projects are going on. And then also once they're there, they're just in this milieu where uh, they're they're constantly talking to people about exciting new ideas. Um, and so the, those things just sort of build on each other. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely an effect where a, a, a beginning of a, a nucleus of that sort of thing will then build on itself um, and, uh, uh, and attract, you know, talent attracts more talent. So I think it's not at all surprising that we've seen these things uh, focus in particular areas, um, especially in the world before the internet, where, uh, you know, if you wanted to have this communication, you had to, uh, you know, a lot of it actually was done face to face. And, you know, even today, still uh, a significant amount of it still is. Well, and it's interesting, right? As we kind of layer in, because even with the internet in place prior to the pandemic, it was, you no know, geography really matters. You had like the 20 minute VC rule. rule. And then at the height of, call it, you know, late 2020, early 2021, it was this, no, no, geography doesn't matter. You know, you don't need to, you know, everyone can be everywhere, right? And now we're kind of, I think, getting to this, does geography matter? And so where, you know, when you have remote work and collaboration, but you still have these kind of hubs attracting people, where are you landing on? Does geography matter kind of going forward? Yeah, geography still matters. I think it. Uh, I think it matters noticeably less than it used to, and I do think the pandemic accelerated that. Um, for context, uh, before I uh, went full time on studying progress, my previous career was in the tech industry. Uh, my background's in computer science and software engineering. Uh, I've lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for over a decade and started a couple of tech. Uh, startups while I was uh, while I was here, so I'm I'm my head is also sort of deeply in the Silicon Valley community, and uh, there's certainly what pre-pandemic or certainly um, certainly five or ten years ago there was among many people, if not everyone, a sort of idea that like if you were doing a tech startup and you weren't in uh, the San Francisco area or Silicon Valley area, then you just weren't, you know, you just weren't really serious or you weren't really committed or, you know, or you, you were making a mistake, right? Not everybody believed that, but there was a, I think it was a sizable, you know, contingent of people who did believe that. And I, and so Silicon Valley had this kind of monopoly on, you know, it was just like the undisputed place to be. And so now post uh, pandemic, I think it is, it's still number one on anybody's list. Like there isn't any other place that has, that is now better. 
But it's just its relative importance, I think, has has been diminished to the point where nobody's going to think you're crazy if you're doing a startup somewhere else. Nobody's going to say, you idiot, why aren't you in San Francisco? You know, um, whereas they might have said that in in the past. So, yeah, uh, COVID just forced everybody to run the experiment. Well, hey, what if we tried remote work? What if we tried uh, uh, doing an investment without meeting face to face, just doing it over Zoom? You know, and I mean, I know tech companies that prior to the pandemic had a policy against remote work. They didn't want people to do it. And then as soon as the pandemic hit, they said, hey, everybody, we are going totally remote. And so everybody's just been forced to try it. And they, a lot of people found out, hey, you know what? It works It works fairly well. And when you combine that with a lot of people just uh, very frustrated with San Francisco city governance uh, and, and what's been happening to the city, then, you know, uh, uh, you know, living conditions deteriorating, housing prices continuing to be very, very high. And then you realize, what are we doing this for, right? And then, uh, you know, also with the pandemic, I think a lot of young people uh, realized, well, hey, the reason I was living in the city and paying these very high rents was to, uh, you know, uh, go out to restaurants, get together with my friends, date, et cetera. And now all of a sudden I can't do any of those things. So why am I here paying this? I, sh- I, I might as well just, you know, get a group house with my friends out in the country somewhere and uh, pay a lot less for a lot more space and, uh, you know, have a better time. So uh, uh, that was another experiment that we were, you know, essentially forced to run. So. And think about funding, right? You said all these new funding mechanisms are starting to come up and people trying out different models. And one assumes in, as you said previously, that kind of that centralization of funding also leaded towards incumbency, right? Whether they were large companies, major universities, are we seeing, you know, and obviously some of these new, you said, you know, the Institute of Progress was announced only like last week, but do you see some of these also funding mechanisms creating regional diversity as well? Like it's not just the major tech centers, but it's these um, different places and different kinds of people who are starting to get the fast grants, the, you know, I I can see lots of these different um, new things kind of coming up. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a difference between uh, tech for-profit investment versus, you know, some of the nonprofit grants and, uh, and, and science research and so forth. I mean, science research has always been a little more distributed because it's been mostly done in universities and the universities themselves are more distributed than any, you know, than say the tech industry or, or other industries that show high concentration like Hollywood, right? We still have, I think the, the brand, I mean, MIT, Caltech, you know, the major brand institutions, even within the universities, as much as they're distributed are still absorbing a significant amount of the funding. So I'm just curious as more, you see more individual researchers or new ideas kind of getting an opportunity that weren't necessarily open when, you know, you couldn't go apply to NIH if you were a single person trying to do some sort of interesting experiment, right? Yeah. So some of the early experiments that we've seen in science funding have stayed within the model of universities as the home for research. And they've just tried to improve the way that those researchers get the funds. So one of the first that we actually saw launched was Fast Grants, which was launched specifically for COVID. It was launched uh, you know, in like April of 2020. So very soon after the, the pandemic became a big thing. And, uh, you know, its goal specifically was just to get money to researchers faster than the traditional processes were going to do it. And to, I think, you know, in part to do that, they said, we're going to stick with some of the traditional, um, uh, you know, we're going to be giving uh, grants to principal investigators. You know, that's a, that's a term uh, in academia, uh, principal investigators within, you know, sort of established research labs at established universities and so forth. Right. So, they were not attempt. I think wisely not attempting to change that part of the way the the the, the system works. 
I do think that over time we will see more, you know, we will eventually maybe see people challenging the idea that the research needs to happen in the university. Uh, there's a lot of good you can do even, even so even just within the universities, you know, in terms of who gets the funding, you know, is it going towards younger people or all towards these older, later career folks? What about grad students? You know, can they get funding for projects or do they have to wait until they become a professor? How much overhead is there to the funding? You know, do uh, PIs, the principal investigators have to spend 30 to 50% of their time on fundraising, which seems like a waste, or can we get the overhead down to 10 to 15%, Right. And how much freedom do we give them? So once you get a grant, you have to get a grant for like a very specific thing. And then you can only use the grant for that thing, no matter what you may learn, uh, you know, as you go through the course of your research, or can we give you a lot more uh, scientific freedom to just pursue a vision, even if it's not one that you can very clearly articulate or justify upfront, but we're just going to trust your hunch and your intuition about what's a a good path to pursue. So those are a, a bunch of sort of things that you can change within the current system without leaving the university as the home. You know, however, there are some arguments, I think, to say, hey, maybe we actually need to also create a significant non-university, you know, place for researchers. For one reason is just like the the universities actually take a lot, uh, they take a big chunk out of every grant. Uh, So they need, you know, the, the university sort of takes a piece for their overhead. And, you know, some of that, obviously they're providing the facilities and like, it it makes sense, but they can take up to half of it, you know, in some cases, and it it seems a little excessive, right? So we might be able to get more efficiencies by avoiding that kind of thing. I should be clear, they don't take half of every grant. um, And a lot of nonprofits, uh, when they're giving money, they manage to negotiate it down to like 10% or something. But like, in some cases, they are taking large, large chunks. But then, you know, like most broadly, I think some people have criticized just the very the career path that researchers have to go through where they are they're going down this path where they need to optimize certain metrics like citations and publications and so forth it's something called the h index which is related to the citations and you know and it can lead you to to maybe structure your work in certain ways that are suboptimal or focus on certain things that are suboptimal and it, 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 you get to a point where you say hey we actually want to change the incentives like the incentive structure is causing people to not go for big ambitious things that could create huge breakthroughs it's actually causing them to be maybe more incremental or short term how do we change the incentive structure well that's very difficult because to change the, to to offer people different incentives you're basically asking them to step off of a career path that they were thinking that they would be on for the rest of their life and step onto maybe a different one. And so now they have to ask a really tough question of themselves, which is, am I willing to go down, you know, am I willing to optimize for different incentives, knowing that I am not setting myself up to optimize for my long-term scientific career under traditional incentives, right? And that is a much more difficult long-term thing, but I, I think it's doable if it's, you know, if, it, if it's really valuable. I think it's also difficult because you have the kind of well-worn path of the researcher. And then of course the researchers that step out into the for-profit startup world, but this is kind of that third tier, right? Something kind of a little bit different in the researcher, but it may, you may have to have certain level of risk tolerance that you're not going to have to go out and say, hey, I'm going to go not only start this new path, but then do a path that hasn't been well established yet and figured out. And so that you kind of have that self-selection of people who are staying in the academia are slightly more risk averse. Otherwise, they'll be the ones who are probably jumping out and starting companies. So it's an interesting kind of um, you know chicken and the egg scenario. 
Yeah. I mean, so one way you can approach this is uh, you can take an evaporative strategy, by which I mean the first researchers that you recruit into this, uh, you know, into this new model are the people who are already maybe a little fed up with the traditional structures, not, you know, not happy with kind of the way they need to optimize their career, ready to ditch it all anyway. And, you know, maybe they're ready to just go like join up a startup or something and leave academia and not become a researcher. And you tell them, Hey, before you do that, I've got this op, I've got this alternate path. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're ready to leave that career path anyway, here's a way that you can uh, continue to pursue your research. Right. And so you get a couple of mavericks who uh, are fed up with the system and just willing to do that. Then, you know, but, but you make sure that they're really great, extremely intelligent, talented people, and they do great work. Okay. So over time they do good work and now they've added just a little bit of credibility to the system right, to this alternate path. And then the next person you recruit doesn't need to be 100% ready to leave the system. They can be 97% ready to leave the system because you've gotten just a little bit more credibility uh, for your alternate path, right? And then the and then the, and then then they come and they add a little more credibility and then the next person only needs to be 95% ready, right? And so you can sort of work your way through the marginal uh, researchers recruiting more and more to this path and, and, your, and your alternate path kind of gets more and more um, uh, credible and established. And eventually it's just, it becomes mainstream. And it's just, hey, there are these different paths where there's this university path, there's this alternate path where we don't optimize for citations and so forth and, you know, choose your path. No, it's, it's, it is interesting in terms of institution building new paths, new models. I think it's a lot of the innovation that's kind of occurring right now, not just straight product or solution or, you know, uh, different types of innovation. Uh, one of the things I want to get to, as we're seeing this different types of innovation, you know, you have a, an essay called The Dashboards of Progress, which I found was one of the first ones I actually read uh, when kind of coming across uh, your work, which I found really interesting when you talked about how is GDP not necessarily the best measure of progress, right? And when I look at, when we look at progress, right, we tend to think about either input metrics, like how many jobs, how many STEM degrees, patents, et cetera, or the pure outcome metrics of like, you know, GDP, uh, et cetera, which are, again, they're all, they're all fine. They're good metrics, but I could be having lots of STEM degrees that are not necessarily resulting in progress. I could also have amazing GDP growth that may be more due to scale, transition, demographics than necessarily progress and innovation. So how do you kind of think about that, um, you know, when we want this new philosophy of progress, this, as we think about innovation going forward, what are the kinds of metrics that we should be thinking about? Yeah, the question of measuring progress is really tough, especially if you want to try to measure it, I mean, really measure it quantitatively. Um, GDP is the thing that almost everybody almost always falls back on because it's just sort of the most, you know, natural metric. It's a thing that's measured. And so it's easy to get. It's measured worldwide. It's been measured over time. Uh, you know, there's like lots of data to work with there. You know, the challenge of the, I mean, look, anytime you always have this context in, in, in almost any context when you're trying to measure something, right? You often, you're taking some proxy metric that is not literally the thing you care about. And you you always, always have this challenge, um, whether you're a researcher, whether you're a manager in a corporation or a nonprofit, whether you're, you know, as an individual, you know, anybody, you, you try to measure things and, and um, you're always measuring, you're almost always measuring a proxy, right? Unless you're a physicist, maybe. So the, you know, the thing with, the thing about progress is like, we want to, we sort of want to measure some uh, general concept of like human well-being, right? Like kind of how happy and fulfilled uh, uh, are, are people, right? Like a thriving and flourishing index. And there's just, it's not a thing that we can measure with any sort of, you know, I mean, who knows, maybe someday we'll be able to measure it quantitatively. 
maybe that will require, uh, you know, a direct probe into everybody's neurons or something. And we can measure the fulfillment center of the brain. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but uh, we certainly don't have that today. So what do we measure? Okay. We measure things like GDP. GDP has all sorts of uh, problems when it comes to this, right? In particular, GDP measures spending, you know, so measure spending on, on consumer goods, uh, basically. And, uh, you know, that means when things get cheaper, if people don't buy more of them, GDP goes down, right? But actually things getting cheaper is good <laughs> uh, because now people are getting the same value for less money, right? When, um, when Google gives away internet search for free and creates an enormous amount of consumer surplus, right? The consumer surplus is now reflected in GDP. Conversely, when uh, governments go to war, Spending on military gets, you know, is is part of GDP, right? Even though that spending is now being used for destruction. So it's uh, it, it just there's all these different ways in which it doesn't exactly match up to what we want. One way to approach this is to say, I, I think the most sound way to approach this is to say, no one metric uh, is no one thing that we can look at is going to tell us exactly what we want about human well-being. If we want to get a handle on that, we need to look at lots of different metrics and try to add up and over integrate conceptually an overall picture, right? So when we want to look at progress, we don't just look at GDP. We look at things like mortality and life expectancy, right? We look at the incidence of disease and um, disasters like, you know, car crashes or fires. We look at the total, you know, the penetration of certain types of key uh, uh, inventions that enhance well-being, right? So how many people uh, can afford a car? How many people have a washing machine? How many people have electricity or toilets and running water and a refrigerator in their home and, and, and so forth, right? How many teenagers complete high school? Uh, how many people are, are literate? Um, so you, you look at all these different metrics and um, I mean, the good thing epistemically, the good news is a lot of these things all tend to go together, right? And so this is one of the things that reinforces, hey, why should we look at GDP anyway? Well, it turns out GDP is correlated with a whole lot of other things that are more obviously like metrics of human well-being, including things like life expectancy and you know access to uh, electricity and running water and uh, uh, literacy rates and you know all these different things, right? So that's a that's another reason why we can sort of uh, come back to it as our as our if we have to pick one metric. It's, you know, it's as good as any to pick. It's interesting. Obviously, you know, this podcast and we're very focused on, you know, the, the Austin region and these metrics we've talked about tend to be better indicators the larger you get, right? Like world GDP, country level, you can look at mortality on these things. But what's interesting is when trying to understand it at a regional city metro level, right? An ecosystem level, it becomes difficult because... If you're truly innovative and you've truly created progress, that is being exported outside, right? I'm, we may have high, you know, high, um, you know, life expectancy in the city of Austin. And if we invent some sort of life, ex, uh, you know, life-saving drug, the better use case may be happening elsewhere, right? So you can't direct that direct measure, right? And so the, you back to these kind of input measures again in terms of just like, well, we have lots of people working on things. Any thoughts on how we can think about some of these large scale metrics, but then bringing them down and just thinking about the, the level of innovationness or the, you know, that we get at a ecosystem level. I mean, in part, it depends on whether it's for-profit or nonprofit, right? So with, with for-profit ventures, you have a metric over the long term, which is their profitability. 
and um, and perhaps their valuation or market cap or their revenue. Or, you know, you have sort of key things like that to look at, which are, um, you know, I mean, your revenue is presumably a lower bound on the value that you're creating. Your your uh, right your because the full value is some maybe or is the consumer surplus right the the um uh you know your profit is sort of a lower bound on like the net value you're creating right um so even companies that end up creating a whole ton of consumer surplus um uh, like Google for instance are going to I think um, end up finding some way to capture you know some portion of that and become massively profitable. Um, you know, if you're looking at nonprofits, it's much harder. Um, and the whole, you know, even trying to objectively measure and compare nonprofits and how much good they do is, um, is like a relatively recent thing that, that efforts like GiveWell and, uh, you know, the rest of the effective altruist movement have sort of focused on. But I think you would have to, you know, pick some metric like, um, you know, they look at whatever quality adjusted life years um, saved or added uh, to the world. And like, maybe you'd have to look at something like that and then attribute it to, you know, attribute it to cities. Well, let's dive into one of those cities, the one that we were always talking about, and that is Austin. Where do you see Austin fitting into this long arc of progress? You all probably have a better answer about that uh, to that than I do. But uh, I mean, all I will say is that, um, a lot of my friends and favorite people and some of the smartest and most ambitious folks I know have moved to Austin in the last year or two. And so uh, I'm actually quite jealous. And if there were a single place that I were to go actually to just like hang out with people and and have great conversations and and get inspired to go do great things, it would it would be Austin right now. That's my personal uh, circle. But it's, uh, you know, it's it's unfortunately they used to be they used to be San Francisco for me personally. And um Due to some combination of people leaving San Francisco and my, you know, personal uh, interests shifting from tech startups to this broader world of progress studies, uh, you know, that that balance has shifted for me right now. So uh, the other thing about metrics is that there are both leading and lagging indicators, right? And um, some of the most direct ways of measuring what you want to measure turn out to be very lagging indicators. And if you want to know whether if you want to know whether you're on track for the future, you have to look for leading indicators. And so I would say, you know, density of great people is a leading indicator that probably leads by a decade or two, you know, these really great outcomes. By that measure, I think Austin's doing pretty well, at least from my very subjective, you know, viewpoint. I want to understand a little bit more eventually about how we measure the density of great people, whether it's Austin or elsewhere. Um, let's flip the coin on that. What are the challenges that we're facing here in, in Texas as well as in the United States? I mean, um, you know, a big challenge that the United States is facing just broadly is uh, how difficult it is to build anything. And you, I can mean this both literally and metaphorically, but just literally, it's difficult to build housing in many major cities. It's difficult to build infrastructure almost anywhere. Um, there's been a number of different articles and sort of stories on this. Um, it's almost impossible to build nuclear power plants, uh, as one example. It's difficult to build even, uh, you know, much more popular things like uh, transit or, you know, rail. And all of these things, we have some of the highest costs in the world and the longest delays to, to build. And I think that is... Unfortunately, it's not something that's being uh, that I think is really on the radar of a lot of people or is getting addressed at sort of the highest policy levels. We got this whole uh, policy proposal or this whole uh, you know proposal in Congress to whatever to build back better. We got this infrastructure bill, and it's all just pouring money into the same 
you know, bucket that, that a lot of it seems to leak out of and not, not deliver a lot. Right. There's not much going, not, not, not much of that proposal was, if anything of it was a proposal for how do we like figure out how to build more efficiently and effectively and, and, uh, and make better use of our resources. So I think, unfortunately, we're just sort of, you know, pouring a lot of resources into, um, you know, into these, these systems and processes that have already shown themselves to be not very efficient. That's one major problem facing the country. Absolutely. Our, our final question is always the same question. Jason Crawford, what's next, Austin? What's next, Austin? Well, uh, let's see. I'm going to be there in March uh, for an event uh, that is to be announced soon. So uh, if uh, if anybody is listening to this and would like to meet me, please reach out. And uh, I hope that I will be coming back uh, a couple times a year at least to, to meet the great community that is there. You know, beyond that... Uh, Again, you all would probably have a better view of it than I do, but uh, I do hope that with all the the great folks who are moving there, that there is, uh, you know, a, a chance for a, uh, a a great new community or an improved uh, community of smart, talented, ambitious people looking to do great things. And so, um, you never know what's going to come out of that, but uh, but that's where great things come from. Jason Crawford, Roots of Progress. Thank you for joining us on the Austin Next podcast. Thanks for having me. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.